Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I got to talk to Kate Graham from Catalyst Kennels about breeding detection dogs. And we had so much fun that we talked for over two hours and had to split this into a two-parter. So Kate Graham has been involved in the dog world since she was 10 years old. She began titling dogs in confirmation, obedience, rally obedience, agility, tracking, nose work, and hunt tests, which gradually morphed into a passion for detection dogs. She graduated from State University of New York at Cobuskill with a bachelor degree in canine sciences and went on to work with the breeding program at a large service dog school. She then worked at a private practice veterinary hospital as a head vet tech and reproductive services manager, taught at a variety of pet dog training and scent work classes. Kate has been an active search and rescue handler for the last eight years, handling two canines. One is certified in human remains detection or HRD, the other in trailing and article search. Kate holds her certified professional dog trainer credentials through the Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers. Kate breeds and trains Labrador retrievals under, Retrievers under the Catalyst Kennels name. Catalyst provides green and pre-trained dogs to police departments, government agencies, and search and rescue teams throughout the country. She breeds one to two litters a year that are sold as puppies to SAR and sport handlers, and her program focuses on using science-based methods to create stable, healthy, highly motivated working dogs. She doesn't believe in training in dogs being just a breeder, and all of the breeding stocks are certified working detection dogs or competitive sport dogs. As I said, this this episode was so fun for me that it went over an hour long, um, longer than it should have, and has been broken into two parters. We're just going to do one science highlight for both, though, um, and you'll see why in a moment. So this article is titled The Effects of Maternal Investment, Temperament, and Cognition on Guide Dog Success. It was published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences um, of the United States of America in 2017 by Emily Bray and others. And their question was, how does maternal behavior influence the long-term performance in puppies for service dogs? So... Their um, their abstract reads in part, to examine the effects of early cognition um, and role of temperament success in service dogs, Bray, Samuel, Cheney, Serple, and Seyfarth studied the behavior of 21 mothers and their litters from a guide dog breeding and training program. Behavioral interactions between the mothers and puppies during a three-week postnatal period were observed. The puppies were then assessed upon reperni- returning to the training center as young adults after having spent more than a year in basic training and socialization of the homes of volunteer puppy raisers f- before the formal training began. The assessments included 11 measures of cognitive performance and temperament, including attention, memory, problem-solving, and reactions to novel objects, people, and situations. The maternal behavior and assessment measures were then correlated to the final outcome, i.e. whether the dog was placed as a successful guide dog or not. Um, And then the maternal behavior for each mother was characterized by physical proximity and contact with the puppies, as well as nursing position as as in whether the dog was lying down, sitting, or standing while her puppies nursed, during the three-week postnatal period. High scores of maternal behavior, such as greater levels of interaction and proximity to puppies, were actually associated with poorer performance on the young adult cognitive and temperament tests, and these performance measures included restlessness when isolated, longer latencies to success, and more errors on problem-solving tests, 
tasks and shorter, shorter latencies to vocalize when confronted with a novel object. So basically they barked faster. Maternal behavior was also predictive of program outcome in that high levels of maternal care, specifically ventral nursing style, where the, the female was lying down on her stomach, were predictive of failure from the program. These young adult test performances were also predictive of performance outcome, in particular, poor performance on a multi-step problem-solving task, shorter latency to vocalize in response to a novel object, and reactivity to an umbrella opening were associated with release from the program. Interestingly, the direction of the umbrella test reaction de depended on breed. So Labrador retrievers with a greater reaction to the umbrella opening were more likely to fail as a guide dog, whereas the retriever, where the opposite was true for golden retrievers. So overall, young adult test performance had greater predictive strength than did maternal behavior, though both were associated with program outcome. So, of course, um, there are plenty of confounding effects, such as genetic. Um, they only talked about placement and graduation and not beyond, so they didn't necessarily look to see whether, um, when these dogs were seven years old, how they were performing as guide dogs. Um, and of course, for us here, this program was just looking at, or this study was just looking at guide dog success. Um, and guide dogs are super un unique genetically. Um, they're often pretty, uh, like the breeding pool for guide dogs is very distinct from the general population. And of course, that job is extremely different from detection dog work. In fact, um, it's important to note that a 2016 study from Foyer et al. had the opposite results for mili military working dogs, which found that more attentive mothers had more successful puppies. So, um, <laughs> you know, again, this is a really interesting study, really interesting place to start, but we can't necessarily say that we can look at how a mother um, interacts with her puppies and then say whether or not those puppies are going to be successful in detection dog programs, because neither of these studies actually looked specifically at detection dogs. Um, it would be fascinating to see if we could do some cross-fostering studies in this line of work, just like what we do with rats to look at how maternal care actually interacts um, with genetics to predict future adult behavior. So without further ado, let's get to the show with Kate. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Kate. Do you want to start out by telling us a little bit about how you got into breeding? Where did you start? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I grew up in the dog world and I was very lucky to be able to, to be within a community of really great breeders from a young age. So, um, my parents didn't do any dog stuff, but I grew up starting in 4-H, um, had some great mentors in the confirmation, competition, obedience, and agility world that were local to me and kind of took me under their wing. So grew up with people who were really what you'd consider preservation breeders who are breeding for the better of the breed, um, who are making those tough decisions when needed and really breeding with an end goal in mind. Um, I was very lucky to have a number of dogs that I co-owned with them that they let me show in junior showmanship and obedience and agility. And um, so I had a, a great start and a great model to look at for what a responsible breeder was. And um, that definitely helped from a young age. So had that, um, originally was not going to go to college, was just going to go and try to be a professional handler out on the circuit for a little while doing confirmation dogs when that, oh, when wow. I thought that was a cool. great idea. Yeah. It was <laughs> yeah. Glad, glad it steered away from that, but that was a, a thought at one point in time, um, was 
highly encouraged to at least go to college for a little bit and uh, give it a go. So went to SUNY Cobleskill, um, which now has a really cool canine management program. At the time, it was all under the animal science umbrella. Um, so went there, worked with a professor who um, has now passed, but that was Dr. Steve McKenzie. And Doc was a PhD in behavioral genetics, um, big figure in the police dog world, and had done a lot of research and uh kind of uh, projects within the canine industry to modernize some of our training techniques. And he took me under his wing and got me involved in a lab project. So he convinced me to stay for my bachelor's by tempting me with lab puppies and telling me that he would (laughs) teach me how to raise green dogs. Um, So ended up under his guidance going out, buying a few lab puppies, uh, got myself into a pet-friendly uh, living situation up at college there and <laughs> finished out my degree, uh, raising green dogs with him. So that was an awesome oh, opportunity. Cool. Yeah. Really great stuff there. Um, and so when we were looking at raising green dogs, um, one of the biggest things was figuring out where we could get them from and labs are a breed in huge demand now in the U S for any kind of detection work. Um, they're very popular, but they're are not a ton of sources that breed them domestically, specifically for detection. So Mm -hmm. we were looking at options for where to get them. Um, Ended up deciding that it may be something that I would like to start a breeding program with in the future. Um, Had always thought it would be small scale, and it still is, luckily. Um, But it was a goal in mind. So I ended up getting a a really nice little female um, from a great breeder who's been doing working dog stuff for a long time with the goal of working her first. So got her certified Mm -hmm. in tracking, got her certified in human remains detection. She's uh, still my just about to retire czar dog to this day. Um, So really got her, loved the work, loved everything else, did her health testing. She passed all her health clearances with flying color. So we decided to breed her and that's where uh, the breeding program kind of started there. Oh, cool. Yeah. What a, I mean, how incredibly lucky to, you know, be a little bit reluctant to go to college and then run into such a ridiculously well-suited mentor in college. Uh, This was not a question I was planning to ask you, but how did you find SUNY? And like, did you know that he was there and that was part of the attraction or? It was, yeah. So it was totally a, uh, it was just kind of a luck of the draw thing. So SUNY was, the perfect distance for me when I was looking to go to college. So far enough mm-hmm. away that I was away, but like, you know, within a few hours of home, so I could play back and forth when I wanted to. Um, and then knowing that they did do some dog stuff there. So I wasn't sure at that okay. point what I wanted to do within the canine industry, but I knew I wanted to do something within dogs and see if I could figure out a way to make a career. I was determined and set not to be a vet tech, which jokes on me because I ended up being a vet tech for three years managing a repro side of a hospital. So um, (laughs) so that happened for a little while, but um, it was determined that I was going to, you know, do something in dogs and Cobleskill had those options. And there's not many others around that do. Dog stuff is something that um, it's a lot more of a learning experience within your tribe and your community, but there's not much higher education within training. Um, mm-hmm. So Cobalt Skill worked as a good fit in, like I said, their canine program, I think just became a thing within the past two years that it's like a formalized canine dedicated degree program. Um, but the dog stuff is always there. Doc was there. And uh, so I went up to play with dogs, play with an associates, ended up with 
staying for my bachelor's and uh yeah but luck of the draw a little bit to get there yeah that's that's really lucky so where did your um your first your first dog come from and then as you were thinking about kind of your foundational dogs um how yeah how do you go about finding these dogs and thinking through who's going to be a good match you know it seems to me like you know we were talking right before we started recording there's it's one thing to find a dog that you want to work with or a dog that you want to buy and another thing when you're starting to think about what does this dog add to a program how do they work within the current group absolutely yeah yeah how do you you think about this Absolutely. So I bought my first dog with the intent of looking for a dog that I wanted to work. So ended up asking around um, a lot of people who do detection stuff and and really seeing who had dogs that they enjoyed and and basically asking everyone that I knew, um, have you seen any labs you like? And if so, can you tell me who they're from? Um, So got pointed down to a woman who does a bunch of FEMA stuff down in Florida, Jen Brown. Um, She's a vet down there too. Really cool person. Um, She had a dog finesse that was, everyone was like, finesse is the dog. Um, So pointed down to her. She doesn't breed very much, but she has all Marinantha dogs. So she pointed me up back to Marinantha up in Maine. Um, Worked out nice because that was pretty close to where I was. Had a dog out of a litter that was related in nicely to finesse. Um, So I went up there to to test that litter um, and ended up with my dog Taboo, who uh, was a phenomenal little fit and has worked out very well there. Um, As far as looking for where I'm sourcing dogs in from, because Pulling diversity is always important. Um, I'm typically looking at those pedigrees first. So I've got a an end picture in mind of what I like and what I would like to produce. Um, it's always evolving and changing a little bit as we go. But I do know at the end of the day, the type of lab that I'm looking for. Um, because a lab is not just a lab as any breed, right? Your border collie is not just a border collie. Um, we all have a specific set of traits that we like and, and goals that we're looking at. So when I'm looking at those goals, I then, okay, this is my end picture of what I want. Go back from there a little bit and see what sports or what activities or what trials are going to reward dogs with similar characteristics. Um, And then where can I find those dogs? So I've narrowed it down to, I like a field trial type dog. Field trials tend to reward the the grit and perseverance I like in a lab. Um, But then narrowing that down even further, um, I like dogs from I've found actually a specific year period that field trials were run. So I like a lot of our late nineties to very early two thousands field trial dogs. Um, as sports go, sports are always going to evolve a little bit and change a little bit. Um, and judging will reflect current trends. So the way a lot of the current trends are rolling in field trials, there's some traits that are being rewarded more highly nowadays that I don't particularly want for a detection dog. Um, great for a field trial dog nowadays, but they need a dog who is a little more visual, uh, great, great marker, great handling dog. Um, Both of which are traits, which I'm not necessarily concerned about in a detection dog. I don't care if they use their eyes super well and can mark well. I don't care if they handle super well. If anything, I want a dog who's a little bit more screw you. I prefer a highly independent dog. Don't need them to handle. But this certain period when field trials were... Just rewarding, again, as trends go, slightly different things. I found I really like dogs from that era. So a lot of times when I'm looking at pedigrees and pulling new dogs into the program, I'm looking for a 
kind of collection of common ancestors from that era. I like a little bit more of an old school pedigree that way. And mm-hmm. that's what I've just kind of worked well with and uh, has produced the uh, the things I'm looking for. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and it, do you do kind of that process largely because you're looking at bringing in diversity so bringing in like uh, other SAR dogs or detection dogs wouldn't necessarily bring in that diversity or is it just because there's not enough SAR detection dogs to bring in that's a phenomenal question so it is because there's not necessarily enough SAR and detection dogs to bring in um with diverse enough backgrounds so there are some phenomenal specimens that are wonderful SAR dogs or wonderful detection dogs but when we're looking from a breeding perspective once a lot of these dogs are from um, pedigrees that there's not a lot behind the pedigree. Um, so this dog himself is a phenomenal specimen. But when you look at what his parents are doing, grandparents are doing, siblings are doing, we either have very little data or most of them are pets and some maybe do a little bit of something. And so this one dog is phenomenal. Um, but I have to look at, is he an anomaly or is he supported by his genetics? Um, so when I can find a dog that's supported by his genetics and his pedigree says he's a great working dog and he himself is a great working dog and the health supports it, I will use that dog. Um, but unfortunately, very many are are just not supported by their pedigree enough um, to know if bringing that dog in is really going to be an asset to the program or is it just that that dog had, you know, the luck of the draw with genetics, a perfect foundation, an awesome handler. And that's who made him in, you know, who has made him into who he is today. Um, right. So I do want that pedigree support behind there to feel comfortable uh, using that dog in my program. Yeah, and that makes sense because, you know, I think over this time scale of years or decades, like I've talked to um, back when we did the Canine Conversations podcast and in the Pandemic Puppy podcast as well, I've, rec- I've recorded other episodes with breeders and like Suzanne Shelton has been, she runs Austerlitz German Shepherds. She's been breeding for, it seems like decades, like maybe yeah. forever, <laughs> you know, and yeah. she knows her lines so well that she can really like breeding ultimately is an iterative process. Mm-hmm. You could test out a stud dog that is like a phenomenal dog in his own right. And you could have a litter that proves that those genetics were there and nobody ever tested or trialed with his ancestors. So you just couldn't see it. But you right. won't know that for like, what, two or three years? Absolutely. I mean, you probably can kind of tell, like, I, I feel really confident with my 14 month old. Mm-hmm. that he's mm-hmm. really turning into something I would like to produce more of. And like his breeder knows that about him and his siblings that like the match has been, has gone really, really well. But you know, it's not like when I'm training, I can get this feedback on a training plan or on a training um, style within, you know, seconds to minutes to at least even like weeks. Right. If I'm really looking at taking a data driven approach. I mean, that's something that just seems so challenging about breeding in general. It is. And it can be such a long game effort. I mean, I've had litters that, Ooh, I had a litter a few years ago that, you know, at 12 months, most of those dogs, I was like, eh, really not a huge fan of them. Um, most of them did end up with agencies. Most of them did um, I think actually all of them except one are working professional detection at three. Those dogs are 
freaking phenomenal. Um, at a year old, if you had asked me, I would have been like, eh, really not a fan of them. Um, so, but that tells us more things. So that makes me feel more confident that I have some younger pups that are relatives of those. I now feel more comfortable saying, okay, maturity, it may help out a lot, you know, and there, there might be very mm-hmm. good things to come with maturity. Um, but it's still always a, a, a crapshoot that way. Um, but we do have to take the time to look at them because we could look at a litter at eight weeks and they could look phenomenal at eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean they're going to hold up when they're 18 months old, three, five, you know, we, we need to see how those things go with age. So breeding is always the long game of really letting yeah. them grow up, letting them see, and then looking at those decisions to be able to go back um and play a little bit and that is why i tend to play with older school pedigrees too it is a little bit of a a security side of thing i can look and say okay this dog is long since dead but i can see it's you know grand puppies and and even sometimes generations down from that and say okay what does he continue to produce and and look at down the line so um that's why i do tend to play on the safe side, I think a little bit with those old school things. Um, yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, again, going back to like that, that predictive value, it is, if, if you could look at an eight week old puppy and say what they were going to be, I mean, guide dogs wouldn't have a 60% washout rate. You know, like, absolutely. Puppy temperament tests just aren't that predictive. You know, I no. did, like, they're just not. And I know, um, like, really uh like another example with nifflers litter so i i helped with the temperament tests when they were seven weeks old yeah and there was one female that like markings wise was one of my favorites in the litter which is an interesting and tricky thing in border collies oh yes um, that i am not like i love and hate about the breed versus labs like i grew up with labs and like, right you're like you know, black or yellow or maybe chocolate but we just maybe chocolate you know. yeah exactly yeah um and that's about as much color as you're going to have but um mm-hmm. in niffler's litter there was this one um tri-colored that just she just had really attractive markings yeah um but she was really shy um, mm. she was like by far the one that like kind of temperament wise during the tests, I was like, Ooh, I don't think I like this dog. Right, um, right. you know, she's really soft. It was really concerning to me, especially cause you know, that's just so common in the border collie breed. Mm-hmm. Um, she went home, um, with someone who I believe, I can't remember what sport she does, but they, um, she and her husband also co-own an auto shop. Oh yeah. And this dog is a full-time shop dog. She plays fetch with every single person who comes in. She is probably as as far as I know like the most social puppy in the litter now. Oh my god. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's just like and I'm I'm sure some of that is environment. Some of that is because she got to be a shop dog. She got so much practice. But also That's... like again, you wouldn't like you wouldn't have expected that. No. No. And there's, there's so many puppies that I would look at at eight weeks and be like, I really don't think you're a working prospect. Um, but we don't know, you know, so I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm part of, uh, John Hopkins has created something called the domestic breeding consortium, or they're heading the project for this domestic breeding consortium to look at breeding, um, floppier dogs of a couple different sporting breeds for, mainly for TSA, um, but for some of the other federal agencies too. And so within this project, they're doing a lot of data collection on that longitudinal data of of puppies and how they're growing up and then into their careers in the future. And so I've got a litter right now of nine. And out of that litter of nine, there was one particular puppy I'm thinking of who at 
you know, six to eight weeks, I would have said he would have been absolutely my pet or low level sport puppy of the litter. Very little mm-hmm. prey drive, very little interest in anything was just kind of a bump on the log, like not really into doing anything. <laughs> he was a cool little dude. We named him Stu because he was just like, he was our little Stewie puppy. He just, he didn't mm-hmm. do much of anything. And he was just kind of a, he was just kind of there, but he was super cute, whatever. Um, because we had to keep him back for this project. Um, eight weeks, his evaluation went meh. He just was very bland. 12 weeks, still no interest in a toy, no much of anything. He's 10 months old now, and he's like the ringer of the litter currently. Like, he's super possessive about his toys, super into things, phenomenal little hunt. Like, he's just super animated, um, like, very intense little dog. I never would have thought that at looking at eight and yeah. even 12 weeks, I would have been like, no way I would have, I would have put him off with someone. And then that poor, poor person that he would have gone to because he's, he's now my, my kind of the jerk of the litter. Um, so some of those things we just can't tell at that age. And I think mm-hmm. some puppies really thrive when they get away from the litter. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I've had some that, you know, within the dynamics of the litter, they're not looking like the strongest puppy as soon as they go off and they're in their own place and they've got their own home with support, they're looking like a little rock star. So some of that can be, I think, very dependent on litter dynamics and, and just letting time happen for some maturity to take place. So, yeah, I'm so fascinated by that. And this is like one of those things that again, like, 10 years from now, I hope I have a house. We were just talking about this before recording. I want a dedicated recording place. (laughs) And I would love to have the ability to experiment with like, you know, I I think about this all the time with Niffler. Like he was the one who in a couple of the temperament tests within litter, he really stood out to me as the best detection working prospect, Mm -hmm. not the the best for agility, not the best for doc because they were kind of a mixed sport goal litter. Um, but the best for detection, he was by far the most independent, the most kind of problem solving. Uh, like he's just a super independent sniffy guy, which is especially yeah. within the border collie breed is a little weird. Um, and I'm so curious, like, was that temperament test actually useful? Or like, if I had taken home, like to any other puppy in that litter and given them the same amount of drive building and like structure and freedom and, you know, right. whatever it is, where would they go? And uh, like, uh, do, do you have any sense? I, I, like, it sounds like this Johns Hopkins um, program is trying to figure out some of these things as far as like, do you think if he had gone to a pet home who never did much with him, he would have developed as much of this? The, that's or, like, Yeah, it's such a great question. And I think if we had an answer for that, we would be so much better off in the detection dog realm. And uh, we just don't know at this point. We really don't. Um, Yeah, it's one of those that's so up in the air. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, we just don't know. But yeah, I like I would I would love one day to have like a bread by litter where I I keep my pick. You know, I go with my gut or the temperament tests or whatever it is. And then I take like, just, you know, one in the middle, you know, whichever one doesn't get grabbed up and like, give them both the same thing and like, see, again, like, and you can probably never really say whether that's a maturity with genetics or the environment. But like, Mm -hmm. I would just love to know how, how many potentially really successful dogs were washing out um, before they're five, six months old. 
Absolutely. I agree. And even sometimes I, I would argue after that point, unfortunately. So, um, you know, I've had dogs. So again, raising this whole litter back and especially we're raising them back until they're about a year old, which for me is excruciating in the sense that I am a, I tend to be a bit of an impulsive washout person. I'm like, Oh, we've had like three bad weeks in a row that that's it. Like we're done. You've said you don't want to play this game. That's it. Um, but we have to remember that things like fear phases exist and, and sometimes dogs are just in a weird little hormonal state at that time and, mm-hmm. and things look funny. Um, so, you know, I have one right now who in my head wasn't, absolute wash for me. I didn't quite like the work. I didn't quite like how he handled the environment. Nothing blatantly wrong with him. Just just not a dog that was for me. A dog that I was pretty much planning to pet out and, and put into a, a sport home or something where he could maybe play some nose work, go hiking, have a great life. Um, had an agency come up who's gotten quite a few dogs for me before, come up and look at them. Um, they happened to just, he was you know, in the truck hanging out that day. So they're like, Oh, can we test him too? They loved him. And they thought he was the coolest thing in the world. And <laughs> and it's just so odd to me because this is the dog that I, I warned them off of the whole time. I'm like, eh, he does this, he does that. I'm not really a huge fan of him. Um, and now they've had him for a while and they're like, we think he's like the coolest thing ever. So it's just, everyone has different little things. And this dog too glommed onto the handler they put him with, thinks the handler is awesome. The dog looks super strong with that handler. It's just a weird combination. Um, So I think sometimes too, the best foundation we can put on the dog, those are so individual. What I might put on the dog thinking I'm giving it the best foundation possible. Um, Someone else might take a completely different approach and the dog might thrive with that a little bit better. So dogs are so tricky, I think, to collect data on this way because there is that emotional component. We can set everything up and and say everything is standardized and the same and this should be the path that sets you up for success the most. Um, But they are emotional beings and there are certain things in their life that for whatever reason, it could be the same program, but in someone else's home and they're going to thrive there better than they are you know, in this particular situation. So it is really hard to determine, you know, are there dogs that may have been washed out if we had done things a little bit differently or if we had kept them back? Because I do think um, there are some that just very clearly don't want to do the work. And then there are some that maybe just don't want to do the work with me, um, but maybe do with someone else. Well, and even maybe don't want to do this specific sort of work. I know back when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation, they got a ton of dogs from National Search Dog Foundation where Mm -hmm. the dog didn't like being around the helicopter, the dog didn't like the rubble pile, or the dog didn't like this or that. But like, if you're going to be out in the mountains of Montana finding grizzly bear scat, no problem. Great. Yep. And then on the flip side, you know, there are certainly dogs that maybe couldn't succeed in the conservation dog side of things because of prey drive or mm-hmm. distractibility, crittering, those sorts of things. But you want a TSA dog, that dog would be fine. Right. It's, you know, um, and, and yeah. And that's, that's just the type of work. Um, it is. It is. Yeah. Well, and I know like, it's funny, you know, you say like you're quick to wash dogs. And I think that's something that like, I had a period of time with Niffler, um, Right around like late, late puppyhood, early adolescence, like that six mm-hmm. to nine months old. Oh, I was like, I yes. don't like him. Right. <laughs> I, I love him, but I don't like him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and he was dealing you... with st- 
stranger danger crap and blah 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 and then you know last night he was at a super bowl party and he was in everyone's lap like he's matured really nicely out of it Uh, but you know and even like one of his most his most impressive things so far is that he was able to work a full field season starting when he was nine months old i wasn't planning on doing that it just happened because of circumstance that my other dog went off with a different handler and i was kind of Mm -hmm. like all right, this is the one project that I think a puppy, it's fair to see if a puppy can do. Right. And he totally rose to that occasion. But that's, it's funny, like thinking about it now, where like, you know, 20 years from now, when I, hopefully I'm handling his granddaughter or something, I'm going to be like, yeah, her granddad, he was working at nine months old. It's like, that's not something that I necessarily am planning on testing all of my dogs through, but that'll be a little right. like notch on his belt forever. Exactly, exactly. And those and are the things. Yeah, no, and I totally chance or uh, fate or like, I don't know. I don't really, there's a word that I want. That's neither of those, but no, but I get it. And, and I understand too, exactly the point you're saying of loving the dog, but looking at them and being like, I just don't like the work right now. Mm -hmm. And I've had to surround myself with a support system of people who know that as soon as they hear me starting to talk about wash a dog, they're like, stop take two months like and I've mm-hmm. sent dogs away for two months and say okay you can go live with someone else for a little while um because a lot of times those issues that I'm looking at in a very short period of time do resolve now I've worked on and found it's much more important to look at trends overall so if I've been looking at a dog for the past six months and continue to rate it poorly on an environmental scale or social confidence or, or some type of pressure in the environment um if that dog's saying it wants to go have a different career and a different life, who am I to make it work? Like go live your best life being a little hiking buddy for somebody and and go do that. Um, The dogs should only work if they really want to work and do the job. Um, But there are plenty that putting a little bit maturity on and just taking a deep breath, sitting back, letting it kind of play out and seeing how it goes in a month or so. Sometimes that makes all the difference in the world. And the dog looks great after they come out of that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, again, going back to that example of Maya, the little try, like, mm-hmm. if she had gone out into like, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm i obviously not her breeder or nothing or anything like that. But I could see her being a dog where, as she's continued to mature, I have no idea what their conversations are like. But my assessment of her had I bred her would right. change dramatically. And I would be really grateful to still like, I mean, it's so important to stay in touch with your puppies for that reason. I oh, assume. yes. Oh, yes. And that's, yeah. I'm really lucky. I have um, awesome puppy owners. And we have a little group on Facebook that's private just for puppy owners. And it's so cool to be able to see even trends within a litter. You know, there's times where they're all peaking at the same time, or they're all hitting a little bit of a funky stage at the same time. And it's really mm-hmm. nice to be able to look at those things and how they go across the litter. Um, even when these puppies are in completely different environments across the country and Hey, all of the puppies are going through a destructive phase where they're trying to like eat the drywall. But sometimes that happens and it's like, well, yeah, mine in Washington is doing it and mine in North Carolina is doing it. And it's super weird. The environment's completely yeah. different, but Genetics are a funny thing. They, yeah, they, they really are. I know. I think so. Niffler was in a litter of seven, and I think three of them were really, really slow to house train. There you go. You yeah. know, and it's just like that's a weird thing. Border collies right. are super smart. They were in relatively experienced homes. Like, uh, who knows? You know, his the the breeder the, the dog the pup that the breeder kept 
was the last one to get fully potty trained. <laughs> you and you know? would think that one in a great home. Yep. She's got it all down. She knows yeah. how it goes. She should be able to house train that dog like nothing. And yeah. Right. Yep. And I, like had no, I had no issues with Niffler, but I also have always lived. Niffler has always lived in extremely small quarters with me. Um, so that, yeah. <laughs> that, helps. that does help. That does help. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's circle around to um, some like health testing and proving. You've talked a little yes. bit about as we're talking about how you select your dogs, what you're looking for, and obviously, again, this is like you're in you're in the lab world, so mm -hmm. some things are going to be different. Um, but what are some of the things that you look for as far as like the health side of things for prospective dogs? Yeah, so health wise. Um we really need to pay attention to health conditions within the breed, um, especially orthopedics or things that may impede a dog's working lifespan uh, because we could have the most talented dog in the world. And if it doesn't have the body to support it, it's, it, it doesn't help anybody. Um, and then we're just harnessing the super talented dog in a somewhat crippled body. Um, so looking at orthopedics is really important for me as a lab breeder because we do have hip and elbow dysplasia issues. So I'm always looking at, you know, OFAs, not only on the dog itself, but on the breadth of pedigree. So the dogs behind it, the dogs around it. Um, OFA has a great feature called vertical pedigree where we can start to look at breadth of pedigree a little bit more, seeing what those grandparents produced, but what the siblings of them produced, what their offspring produced, um, to start to look at trends within our orthopedics. Mm -hmm. um, because it is, I think, more important to look at what's behind the dog than, than maybe what that actual dog has. So sure, I can find a specimen that has excellent hips on x-ray, but if the majority of his, you know, background behind him has fares and, and quite a few, you know, mild or moderate dysplasias, um, that excellent doesn't mean it's a lot because we know the genetics behind it support not as great of hip conformation. Um, so looking at that breadth of pedigree, so orthopedics are really important, hips and elbows. In labs too, we have plenty of dogs that test uh, mild dysplasia on their elbows. Um, some people do breed those, some people don't breed those, and we don't need to get into the debate of should we or should we not. Tends to be asymptomatic from my perspective, at least selling dogs to agencies, I can't sell a mild dog. So I'm going to avoid adding yeah. that into my program. Um, I know it could take, you know, go for a CT scan, be clear, be totally fine. I can't, I'm not CTing every dog that comes back mild. <laughs> yeah, no way. And, and I can't show an agency and be like, well, so he has mild elbow dysplasia, but a CT is normal. Um, it's too much of right. an ask for someone to understand that. Um, so I've got to look yeah, at pedigree or health testing also that's going to support the the area that I'm trying to sell dogs to. And then looking at some of our other things. So labs, we know we have some cardiac issues. Um, a lot of those are mostly we're looking at tricuspid valve dysplasia and mitral valve dysplasia, um, both of which in a mild form present without a murmur. So we do have to do echocardiograms to ensure that those dogs are not asymptomatic, basically carriers of the disease. Um, so things there, because it is one of those things we could pretend everyone doesn't have it. 
but we don't know unless we echo um, or unless we produce severely affected puppies. And I'd much rather not do that. And then looking at some of our other things. So eyes, genetic status, um, we're in a great place now where we can test for so many different genetic diseases. And most yeah. of those are autosomal recessive diseases where we can breed carriers to clear safely um, and, and start to breed away from those carriers slowly without having to call a large part part of our population because they're carriers. Um, so yeah, health testing is with the expression in horses is no hoof, no horse. And in dogs, it's essentially, if you don't have the, the orthopedics and the health testing behind them, the dog, it doesn't help anybody out, you know? Yeah. So it's not, it's not doing what it needs to do. And it's not fair to the dog. It's not fair to whatever handler we're putting it with. My name is Key and I have a two-year-old working Cocker Spaniel named Cooper. Cooper and I are new to this field of conservation detection dog work, so I am loving being a Patreon of the Canine Conservationist. Uh, We get to meet once a month via Zoom with people all over the world and watch each other's videos and um, give input, and it's just been such a wonderful learning opportunity. Um, On top of that, I'm really excited about something that's about to start, which is a book club that we're going to be going through a scent book that I tried to go through on my own and realized I really needed some more help. So it was perfect timing for me, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Just being able to meet people and talk through issues and um, better understand the whole field of canine conservation work um, has just been such a, a great thing. And Kayla and the canine conservationist have played such a huge part in that happening for me. So thanks, Kayla. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know. Um, that's like one of the biggest things. Niffler's getting his preliminary OFAs done this week. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> the yeah. most- Right? Yeah. Like, oh, God. But yeah. I'm sure it'll be great. First, yeah, I hope so. Um, I mean, if nothing else, it's so silly, but I'm just like, oh, God, it's his first time going under. And, oh. I, you know, oh, yeah. It's I know, I know. Hopefully, light sedation, it. reverse him right out. He'll be a little he'll drunk for the rest of the day. Yeah, I'm oh, looking yeah. forward to drunk Niffler, honestly. Um, <laughs> it's going to be so much better. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. And then, so, and you say that like a lot of your breeding um, prospects you're getting in from these, um, these hunting and field trial lines. Um, Are there any other areas that you look at? Like, do you ever look at maybe, I don't know, the dogs that are winning like summit titles and nose work or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. So looking at those dogs themselves and looking at where those dogs come from. Right. So nose work is one of those where that is rewarding a lot of the traits that I would like to see more in my detection dogs. Um, Mm -hmm. And just as much, I'm looking for the dogs that are winning and super successful and also the dogs that are not winning um, for specific reasons. So um, at least for my, most of my agency placements, um, I'm looking for a detection dog that is working independently, that is intense, that is highly motivated, um, and that is handler resilient. So if I'm placing a dog with a police department or some of these federal agencies that we place with, I need a dog that's going to be able to take that first time handler who has no idea what they're doing and may have never held a leash before and can be (laughs) resilient to all the mistakes that handler is going to be able to, to make inevitably. And the dog can still do their job successfully. So I do need a dog that works at least to an extent as a mercenary that way and can say, Hey, Hey, you, you go fumble with the leash over there. I'm going to just do my job, pay me at the end and I'm happy. Um, 
So for some of our sports, like retriever sports, some of our field trial dogs, I might be looking for a dog who's got a little bit more of that punky screw you type attitude or a little bit, you know, wants to drive the ship themselves because I like that dog. It's not going to win. It's not going to end up, you know, FC. Um, but it might produce some really cool detection dogs. Um, when we're looking at nose work and in some of those sports, I think as long as we're looking at the dog as an individual and not just looking at the titles it's it's come to. So nose work's a phenomenal example. Um, it is rewarding the the hunting and the the ability to be able to work with distractions, time pressure, all of that that we're looking at in a detection dog. But look at how many different breeds and dogs compete in that. You can have Bichon nose work champion, you know, summit title dogs. You could have all different breeds. And so a lot of it can kind of play into, is it a skilled trainer um, that's really right. supporting the dog through and building the dog up appropriately? Or is it that that dog is just phenomenal and it could take a, you know, amateur handler who's making all these mistakes and the dog's still rocking it. Um so I think in those types of things, looking at the dog as an individual, watching the dog work, um, there's so much that can be gained from watching a dog work a problem, um, watching a dog work with its handler, with someone else handling it, um, with the pressure of, you know, just being in a novel, stressful environment that can tell us a lot about who that dog is um, and what kind of grit they do bring to the table. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you know, I know one of the things I think of with nose work is just how much shorter those searches are, right? Than at least what what I'm going for. Yeah. Um, I don't know yeah. necessarily how like TSA runs their dogs or a lot of these other agencies. Like maybe maybe a shorter, um, like less endurance is okay, but um, mm-hmm. that would be a big mm-hmm. concern for me. And I know I think it's Sarah Strebing has said this about looking for agility dogs. She says one of the things she looks for is the dogs that are doing well despite their handler. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You know, you're really looking. She's, or at least she said that she's looking for these dogs. That yeah, they're they're doing really well in trials, even if their handler is fumbling a little bit, or mm-hmm. you know, and maybe the dog has a broken contact or something. You know, in like the agility world, but it's because of training. You know, and therefore that dog isn't necessarily winning trials. But the dog has the athleticism and the handler focus that you want or whatever it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so a great trainer can, can fix a lot of issues in a mediocre dog. Um, You really need that phenomenal dog though, to be able to make up for the handler, the make up for the mistakes of a, a new or maybe not a skilled handler. Um, so looking for those dogs that can be resilient and can lead the ship when they need to is important in so many different sports, but I think especially detection where we want a dog who really is taking their job seriously and has the independence to do their job essentially on their own and, and the confidence to say, I am leading the ship. Um, and when we go back to nose work, I, I mean, I have a dog who runs, I just run AKC things because that's what's more local for me. So one dog, he's my hunting dog. He runs nose work trials. He's trialing at the master level and he's got a detective pet. We just 
star detective and he got a detective pass. Um, but I love watching all those dogs at the top levels compete because you find some really phenomenal trainers who are super skilled, who are able to take dogs who really do not have much natural hunt or intensity and through handling, through certain training progressions that you can see as they're handling their dogs, um, are able to make these dogs something really incredible, which is a huge phenomenal feat for them. And it's, it's really cool to watch. Um, but we do have to look, would that dog look the same with a first time handler? Some, some Mm -hmm. might not. Um, and would that dog be able to handle an environment with true stress and pressure where they have a handler who oftentimes is influencing them to do the job incorrectly? Um, so a lot of our LEO handlers and a lot of our federal agency handlers become really great handlers. They really do. Um, but a lot of them are first-time handlers when they start out. And most of them do not have a ton of working dog experience behind them. And most of them do not have a ton of uh knowledge on what a working dog is or should be doing. And humans have a natural bias to believe certain things are in certain places or definitely not in other places. Um, And I need a dog who's going to be able to correct the handler when necessary and be able to say, no, buddy, you're, you're totally wrong. I know you're pushing me to, you know, really throw an alert here. You really think it's here, but nah, you're wrong. Like I'm going to go drag you the other way and we're going to go to where things really are. Um, and it, it takes a certain type of dog who's very confident in their own abilities and often, uh, believes their handler is at least a little bit dumb to, to be able to do <laughs> yes. this job successfully. And you'll see it. I have, I have dogs who look at me like I'm stupid, but they do their own job. Great. You know, they just would like me to back away and stay out of it and let them do their own thing. Pretty please. And just carry their toy at the end and uh, give it to them when needed. Yeah. That's, it's such a good point about the nose work dogs. I think that was one of the biggest things I remember most clearly about the nose work classes that I started with, with barley back you know, five or six years ago now was watching some of these dogs and watching how some of the dogs would perform on par with Barley. But when you watched them, you could tell Barley was performing at that level kind of despite me. Right. And some of I remember specifically, there was this one Shiba Inu that Mm -hmm. literally just walked into the center of the search area, kind of like, looked around for a couple seconds and then just like walked over to where the hide was, refused her reward and walked yep. back to the car. Yep. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and her times would be similar to Barley. Right. But if you looked, you know, so if you like just looked on paper, you'd be like, Oh cool. Great, great work in Sheba or whatever. And then you look at the dogs and you're like, Oh no, I like that would not be a dog that I would necessarily want to add to my program. <laughs> Right. That handler is certainly someone I want to talk to about training. Oh, yeah. For (laughs) sure. For sure. The handlers who can take some of these dogs and make them into the detection dogs that they're able to, I mean, we all need to be paying attention to that side of the nose work world right now because there are some really phenomenal handlers coming up with some really awesome training systems that are working. And if they can work with your little low drive, very hesitant to hunt, you know, non- sniffy type breed non-traditional breed um imagine what they could do with like a dog that's genetically inclined to do that task like there's yeah there's cool things to happen in the future i think yeah definitely so you know we've touched on this as a little bit as well but what about like dogs that 
you really like how they work. Maybe you like what you're seeing with some of their close relatives, but when you zoom out into the pedigree, you're not liking as much of what you're seeing. How, would you use a dog like that? I'm sure it depends, but how do you kind of think about assessing dogs like that? It's a really good question. So I'm going to look first, is it a health thing or is it a behavioral thing? So if it's a health issue that I'm seeing that's cropping up, maybe not in the immediate generation or two, but quite frequently a couple generations back, um, that may make me a little bit more hesitant to use that dog uh, because health things are things I would just like to not stack into the deck for me. You know, I don't want to add those things into my program. Um, but if we're looking behaviorally, you know, the last couple generations have either been titled or worked, um, you know, for labs, we have plenty of labs that aren't actually trialed, um, but are just meat dogs. They're just out there collecting pheasants for their owners or collecting ducks. And some of those dogs are awesome and have the traits that are exactly what I want. So um, maybe we don't have the, the titles that far back. I will look then at breeding something complementary that may have a much more proven uh, history. So if I have a dog, a stud dog that I'm looking at that I love, that I love him, I love his parents, I love some of the siblings, the health stuff's all lined up. I would probably make that pairing to a pedigree that I know more extensively. Um, something probably that I've already bred before that I'm comfortable with what they're producing, that I, I know the line inside and out. Um, and then we can add in that, that new variable. Sometimes it's going to work beautifully. Sometimes we're going to fall on our face. Um, but if we have good puppy homes and, and a good support system behind them, we're going to be able to take those gambles every once in a while. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. And once again, you've kind of brought us to our next question, which is uh -oh. thinking about, you know, are you trying to breed two dogs that complement each other really nicely mm -hmm. in a way to, you know, either when you're talking structure or temperament where you're like, this dog's a little sharp and this one's a little soft. Like, are we going to try to put that together? Right. Or, or are we trying to take like, we've got this dog that is a little sharp for some handlers and this dog that's a little sharp for some handlers. And we're just going to go for consistency because a lot of other handlers like that. Again, right. I'm sure it depends, but like, how do you think about complementing versus aiming for consistency? I think it depends how far on the spectrum we're talking um, that they are apart. So if I've got one dog who is super soft and another dog that is super sharp, um, mixing those two, we have to remember, often isn't going to give us just that nice little blend in the middle. It just unfortunately doesn't. We might end up maybe with one puppy in the litter who is that nice little blend, but we're probably going to end up with even more on, on the extremes on either side. Um, so we do want to, I do tend to breed more, complementary type dogs. Um, with that being said, you also have to look at the, the diversity in the population that you're looking at. So I'm sticking primarily to field bred labs. So even when I'm breeding things from pretty opposite sides of the spectrum, they're all still pretty related. Like they're all still pretty similar. So we can breed, um, a little more on the outside of the spectrum and still generally end up with a fairly consistent picture. Now, when I talk about breeding, I've done a couple um, show to field crosses. So our field population mm -hmm. to essentially almost completely different population or almost a completely different breed of our show dogs. Um, that's where we can start to see those litters. I've typically not been super thrilled with the litter itself, but I'm breeding that litter with the 
idea of taking a puppy from it, my favorite puppy from that, and then breeding that back into mine in the future. So generation one, I often don't like it. Generation two and three, when I've taken that dog, that's a total kind of from both ends of the spectrum, taken a puppy from that, then have used that puppy, bred them back into my program with my dogs that are fairly consistent and I like. I've had that work really well to add a little bit of diversity in, um, pull some of those traits in that I was looking for, but still end up in a fairly consistent picture. So long story, typically generation one, when we're doing outcross to outcross, we end up all over the board. But if we can take a nice puppy from that, then breed them back to something a little more consistent with our program, um, we can get some really cool results, either generation two or generation three. Um, But it is when we're talking about trying to blend two individual dogs to just hope that we end up somewhere in the middle. Unfortunately, rarely does it happen that way, at least in my experience. Um, That makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah, that's, it's a tricky thing. And I, yeah, I think there's a difference in between, like when some people say complimentary, they might, yeah, they're looking at two dogs where one is, one is a, four out of 10 on something and the other's a six out of 10 on something. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of, there's still maybe you're aiming for a five, but you're not trying to take like a two out of 10 and an eight out of 10 to make a five. Right. Um, Exactly. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when we look at these outcross projects, whether it's, you know, within a breed and you're looking at outcrossing from a really intensive hunting line to a really a show line or even outside of breeds, I've got a friend right now who's looking at a getting a Shiloh Shepherd that's from a Shiloh Turv um, outcross mm. project where they're trying to yeah. add in these Belgian Tuvurans for genetic diversity to these Shiloh Shepherds, you know. And she's looking at getting an F1 because she's not that interested in necessarily having that specific breed. She's looking for a, a specific type of sport pet prospect. Right. Right. Um, and I'm, you know, the breeder is very much so hoping that as they continue to fold in that Turv. Mm-hmm. DNA, they can get back to what they're aiming for with the Shilohs. Um, and I think that's something, you know, I know the functional dog collaborative back when they, or collective back when they right. had a podcast, they talked about this all the time and, you know, the difficulties as a breeder of how you talk about those litters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know it's a big thing in like Dobermans where it's like, yeah, when you've got like a, I don't remember what breeds they're layering in with the Dobermans a lot of times, but if you've got like a a doberman pointer f1 cross those puppies Mm -hmm. might be a little bit harder to place absolutely long term they're not going to have a co an inbreeding coefficient of 40 percent they're less likely to have wobblers they're less likely to have these devastating health problems Mm -hmm. in the breed Mm -hmm. and it is it's just that f1 dog that you're looking at that you're going it's going to be a little bit but when we fold and i like that analogy of folding everything back in um we can end up with a more consistent picture that did just add in that little bit that we were looking for um so i think that's we do often have to approach it in the long-term model Model. And also using consistent language when we're talking about dogs. Um, so at least in a lot of our, our detection dogs, and I'm sure you hear it all the time. We talk about, you know, drive, which whether drive's a real term or not, but drive versus arousal or even energy levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people, you know, I've had people who are describing these dogs to me as super drivey and super whatever. And I get out there and look at the dog. And I'm like, eh, it's just actually really high arousal and like, 
mm-hmm. mediumly actually effective in what it's doing, but it's really high arousal. Um, so using common language so that we can say, okay, I am breeding this litter for um, a very highly motivated dog, but you know, arousal on this dog is a, you know, a three out of 10 arousal on this dog is a seven out of 10. Um, that's going to give me a better idea than saying this dog's super high drive and this dog's not as drivey. Well, what is actually, what functions are actually going on within that? Because what I describe as a super high drive dog might look very different to someone else than what they would say a super high drive dog is. Um, so using common language too, and we're describing, which we're not at that point where we can, because I think there's not really any common definitions for, for what those things mean. And we're not, we all like a little different of a thing. So we're all going to describe it a little differently. Um, but trying to look, you know, we've done, I've know some people who have done some crosses bringing in field dogs because they want to add more drive and they've got a show line dog that, um, they say is a great worker and whatever. Well, it turns out that show line dog was actually mostly arousal, got to do the work. You add a field line dog onto it. Now you've added fuel to an already burning little fire. Um, and we just end up with these super high energy, high arousal dogs, and they might look flashy for a little bit, especially as puppies. We get them older and they can't actually functionally work because they're just spazzing out of their brains all the time. Um, but if we had talked in the same language and um, used the same terms, we might have picked up on that a little bit sooner. Thank you so much. Um, everyone stay tuned next week for the second half of this episode. You can find everything over at Canine Conservationists. And um, again, we'll be back next week for a little bit more with Kate because I have a ton more questions for her, um, including an anecdote about exactly what she was talking about just now. So um, Kate, do you want to remind people where they can find you online and then we will... Uh, continue our recording yes so um i'm on social media catalyst catalyst with a k um so catalyst kennels on facebook catalyst canine on instagram um email if anyone wants to reach out is the best way to get to me it is catalyst canine the letter k the number nine at gmail.com um and i always love talking working dogs with people um so please reach out yeah thank you so much and again we'll be back next week If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is 
hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.